In Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to begin in just a moment in verse 13. And I want us to think about, I want us to think about this morning the fact that we live in a world of very broken promises. As a matter of fact, if you look around you, if you look at the things that are going on in the world, you realize very quickly that most people do not have a problem breaking their promises. I'm not talking about here the occasional forgetfulness that some of us have or that sort of thing, but some of the most important promises that we make in life to other people have become very cheap in our world today. And most people, unfortunately, do not think twice about breaking those promises. Because it's easy to break promises, it has become difficult to trust people. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of issues trusting people and somehow naturally believing that they're going to do the right thing, that they're going to keep their promises, that they're not going to wrong me. As a matter of fact, we, unfortunately, struggle to trust people who have done nothing to deserve our mistrust. I understand that if someone wrongs you, it is harder to go back and then trust them later. But I'm speaking of people who have never wronged you and never done anything to cause you to mistrust them. Because of the way the world works, we often distrust people. I think this is at what I would call an epidemic level. And it's, it's a problem because it is very hard to go through life and have any type of joy and contentment if you don't trust anyone. And if we went around the room this morning, many of you could raise your hands and testify to the reasons that you have for not trusting. And many of them would be extremely valid. Maybe you have been wronged greatly. And that makes it difficult to trust. But it's also a problem. And it's a problem that's not just for the world, but it's also a problem that we have within the walls of our church. It's hard to trust. We could look at churches all over our country and we could dig down to the root of many of the problems that they are experiencing. And that problem at its core would be a lack of trust. The funny thing is, or not funny, I guess the tragic thing is that if you were to dig down to the core root of the problems that many of them are experiencing, what you would find is that it was something petty that happened so long ago that nobody even actually remembers what happened, but it has caused in them such great distrust that they have become unproductive for the kingdom of God. Because that's what happens when we don't trust each other is that other people can't look at us who are supposed to be a reflection of Christ and trust in God. Because if His people can't trust each other, if His people can't keep their promises, then how can they expect that God will keep His? It's a tragedy in the church and it makes us unproductive for the kingdom. 
Because what we need to do is relay to people and show people that our God is completely, in every circumstance and in every situation, trustworthy, loyal, and true. Every situation. No matter what's going on, no matter what God has said, no matter what He has promised that He will do, God is always faithful. And this morning, as we look at these verses, that's what they're trying to tell us. It's what they're trying to remind us of, is that our God is faithful, that His promises are certain, they will happen. Let's look this morning about the certainty of God's promise. I invite you to stand with me as we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 13 and we're going to read into chapter 7. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You may be seated. There's a lot in this passage. It is lengthy and there's a lot of things that at first glance are are difficult to decipher and understand. So I want us to walk through this passage this morning because we can get caught up in a number of different things that aren't the relevant point of what he is trying to say. Because this entire passage, 
these verses are about God's promise. And that when God makes a promise to us, it is something that we can be certain of. It is something that will never fade, it will never fail, and it will come to pass just as God has promised it. And so we begin by seeing this promise that has been made to Abraham. We can find that God makes multiple promises to Abraham if we go back to the book of Genesis. The one in particular that is being spoken of here is from Genesis twenty-two sixteen and 17. God had taken this man, Abram, and he had brought him out of a country that God didn't want him to be in. And he, he had taken him to a place that he was going to show him, and he wanted him to know that this was going to be a promised land, and his descendants would occupy this land. This would be theirs. This would be their inheritance. The ironic thing is that Abraham, or Abram, and he became Abraham when God changed his name. He didn't have any kids. And if you don't have any kids, you, you don't have really anyone to leave your inheritance to. At least you don't have an heir who is going to carry on your bloodline. His heir was someone who was not his son. Which meant that when he died... That was going to be it. His bloodline would stop there because he didn't have any children. And so God comes to him and God tells him that he's going to, he's going to be the father of this great nation. As a matter of fact, if we go back and you look in the book of Genesis, when, when Abraham is told this, he, he laughs. Because it's funny, right? His wife's almost 100 years old. And he's going to be a daddy. And somehow he's going to be the father of a great nation. Now this shows you that, for one thing, our God has a sense of humor because nobody in this room that I'm aware of is 99 years old, but I'm sure if God came to you with that at 99, you would laugh as well. And that's what Abraham does. He finds it humorous that, that God is somehow going to fulfill this great promise in him even though he is old. Now, I don't know what your definition of old is, but to me, once you get to 99, that's old. If you can't consider that old, then you're never going to be old, I guess. Because that's old. And so Abraham laughs, but God says that he is going to be the father of a great nation. And it's absurd because how does a childless man father many nations? How does he father a great nation? How does he do something so spectacular? How does he do something so long-lasting and yet he doesn't even have a child? Well, God wants to make sure that Abraham is very aware that this promise that he has made is going to stick. That it's going to happen. And so not only does he tell Abraham that, he gives Abraham that word, you are going to be the father of many nations. That is one promise, but he backs it up with an oath. He makes this bond with Abraham in his promise. He gives him his word. He swears. And it's interesting here because in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Many of us have heard that, and 
we try to avoid it, I, I think, but, but you know, you've heard somebody say, well, I swear to God that I'm going to do this. Now, Jesus talks about us making our yeses, yeses, and nos, nos, and not needing to do that, but we still hear people do that. Well, who does God swear to? Who does God say, well, I swear by not Abraham. Well, I swear by the angels. That's not how it works. So the Bible tells us here that he swears by himself that he is going to make this happen. He gives them, as we are told here, two things that are unchangeable. Verse, 18 tell, or verse 17 tells us he guaranteed this promise with an oath. And verse 18 says that so that by two unchangeable things. God's word is unchangeable. And God's oath is unchangeable. And so therefore he has made this promise to Abraham by two unchangeable things. Now, to me, that's a pretty amazing thing that the God of the universe has said that to Abraham. He has made this promise that seems like it could not happen. It seems like it could never be fulfilled. How can a husband and wife of this age have children? It's just not possible. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis and you, you look at what God tells us in His Word about this particular situation, they assumed that what it meant was that Abraham would have a child by someone else. So he ends up having a child with Sarah's servant. But God says, this is not what I said. This is not the fulfillment of my promise. My promise was that you, Abraham, and you, Sarah, are going to have a child even though you are very old. Even though you're well past the time when you should be having children. God says, I always keep my promises. What's interesting about this promise that we have here from God is that it is not contingent upon Abraham doing something. If you look at many of the promises that God makes, many of the covenants that he makes in his word, they become dependent upon the people. If you look at the covenant that he makes with his people before they enter into the promised land, he says, if you will do this, if you will follow me, if you will love me, I will. And he makes this whole long list. I will bless you in this area and in this area and in this way and in this way. But it's contingent upon their obedience. Because what does he say? If you are familiar with where I'm talking about in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, just a few verses down the road, but if you don't, I will curse you in this area and in this area and in this area. And I will curse these things in your life and I will curse this part of your life. If you obey, I will bless them, but if you will, if you disobey, I will curse them. If you go back and look in the book of Genesis, he calls Abraham out and he tells him, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to keep this promise always. It's good news because if we look from Genesis and we work our way through the Bible and we're reading about what the people of God have done and the people, uh, what they have, uh, who they have worshipped and where they have went, time after time after time after time, they disobey God. They continually disobey Him. And time after time after time, He continues to keep his 
promises. Friends, for you and I, that is really good news. Because all of us will walk out of this place, we'll walk through the rest of our day, we'll go through the rest of our week, and there will be time after time after time after time where we disobey God. The choice will be in front of us to do what God has called us to do or go our own way, and time after time we will select to go our own way. We will go God's way many times, but there will be plenty of times where we decide we're going to go our way. We're going to do it our way. Isn't it so good for us that in those moments when we do that, God does not invalidate His promise? What would your life look like if the moment when you disobeyed God, in that moment He invalidated the promise that He had made to you? He took back His oath He took back his word and he said, all right, you want to do it your way? Fine. Go in your direction. Do it your way and see what happens. How good it is that every time we go our way, God reaches down and he pulls us back. Sometimes he reaches down and he pulls us back kicking and screaming. We don't even want to come back. We want to keep going in our own direction, and God weighs so heavily on our heart, all we can do is turn back to Him. Why? Why would He do that to us? Why would He offer that to us when we love to disobey Him and we love to run in the other direction? It's because He swore by Himself. It's because in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs ultimately of the promise that is made here? It's us. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. God gives us this double promise, if you will. This promise that He will never leave us or forsake us. This promise that He will not lie. This promise that He will make us something great. He gives it to us so that when we're hurting, so that when we're going through difficult circumstances, so that when we're going our own way and it weighs heavily on our heart, that it might provide us just a bit of encouragement. Abraham, in this promise, disobeyed. He, he just did not listen. He wanted to go and do it his own way, even though God had called him out of this land that he had lived in. He had brought him to a promised land. He had shown him so many great things, but Abraham still had trouble listening to God. It's not surprising. I'm there. I'm sure you're there. But Abraham could come back to this promise, even even when times were difficult, even when he, he didn't know what direction he should go in, even when he disobeyed God and tried to do it his own way, he could come back to this promise and be certain of it because our God never lies. We do, but our God doesn't. This promise, it provides hope 
for those who are seeking refuge. It gives strong encouragement to hold fast. Think about this. It gives us encouragement, according to verse 19, to hold fast to the hope set before us. This promise is assurance that God is faithful to us in every circumstance. How many of you have been to a point in your life where you had wandered so far away from God that you look behind you and it seemed like God was far off? It seemed like it was a long way to get back to Him. And in that moment, you didn't think about the fact that if you cried out to him, he'd be right there and he would pull you wherever you needed to go. But when you look back, it seemed like it was a long way to get back to God. This promise that he gives here, first recorded in the book of Genesis and now recorded for us in the book of Hebrews, this promise is for that situation. It's interesting, the placement of this in the book of Hebrews. Because think about what we looked at the last two Sundays that we were in this book. We, we looked at the warning about wandering away from God and not coming back. We looked at how dire it is for someone to say that they know Christ and then wander away from Him then stray away, then turn away again to the things of this world. We looked at how dangerous that is. He uses the word impossible, remember? That it's impossible for them to turn again. And with as gloomy as that prospect is, and with as dangerous as that promise was that is made in that part of God's Word, here we read the fact that God has given us His promise that what He has said will happen. And if we know Him and love Him and trust Him, He will never leave us. And in those times where we have wandered far away, when we're doing our own thing, when we're going in the wrong direction, even in those times, if we will turn around and look back, we will see that God has made not one promise here, but two, that what He has said will happen. And since He has promised us hope in Christ, that hope can never be taken away. That hope is always available. He says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is a message for those who have fled for refuge. A message that they may have strong encouragement. It's encouragement to hold fast to the hope that we have within us. Because friends, we are in a day and we will continue to face a day where it will be increasingly difficult to stand up for your faith. It will be increasingly difficult to live as a believer in our society. If you want to do it, you're going to have to begin to make some sacrifices. Our brothers and sisters all over the world make them. We will have to make them as well. And in that time when it is difficult, in that time when it is hard, this is a message of hope. 
This is a message to cling to that unchanging Word of God. To hold fast to the hope that is set before us in Him. I love it. He calls it an anchor for our soul. People in our world today want to anchor their souls and their lives to all kinds of stuff. They want to anchor it to They want to anchor it to our culture. They want to anchor it to our celebrities or to our money or to our politics. We, we want to anchor it to so many things. He says, for the believer in Christ, the only anchor for your soul are the promises of God. <laughs> Nothing else is going to work. When when in that day God's swift judgment pours out across the whole world, do you think that anchoring it to your money is going to work? Do you think that anchoring your soul to your job is going to work? It'll be swept away like everything else. As it should be. Friends, we can't even put our hope in each other. We can't put our hope in our families. Our hope can only be found in the promises of God because they do not change. He has not only made His Word to tell us of His promises, but He has given us His oath that He will fulfill everything that He has promised for us. can't go anywhere else. He says we've got to anchor it to the promise And look who the promise is. He says, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone. He says, our hope is going where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we get this Melchizedek guy again. This guy, by the way, got just a few verses in the Old Testament. Just a few. You read about him in Genesis. You read about him in the Psalms. He appears very briefly. Kind of a strange guy. And then we get to the book of Hebrews and Jesus is compared to him constantly. And he says that our, our promise in Jesus, our promise in Christ, our hope is all tied to somebody being like this guy, Melchizedek, who most of you can't even pronounce his name and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. And our hope is tied into him. How does that work? Why is that? Well, look at these things that he says that Melchizedek does. Because we somehow can go to Jesus. We can go into the presence of God. We can have hope because Jesus became like this guy, Melchizedek. A priest. A priest has made this promise for us. This promise that we have in God. This promise that Abraham had that he would be the father of many nations. This promise that we have that we can be the children of God. That he will be our father and we can have an eternity with him. 
it's somehow sealed through a priest. Jesus can make and keep this promise because he is no ordinary priest. But somehow he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll look in verse or chapter seven. We'll begin in verse one. Look, look at what happens here. Look at this guy, Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, verse one, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So that's the story. That's what happened. Go to Genesis. There's not a lot more than that. Melchizedek is there. And for some reason, Abraham decides to give him 10% of his stuff. We read that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem, and he is a priest of the Most High God. So why does any of that matter? How does that justify using this guy's name so much in the book of Hebrews? How is it that we can have any hope because Jesus was like Melchizedek? Well, here's how. There are five things in verses 2 through 9 that we're going to look at, and these are the characteristics of the priest that we needed. And somehow they matched up with this guy, this obscure guy from the book of Genesis. First, look, continuing in verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Friends, you and I are not righteous at all. On our own, we have no righteousness. We have no right standing before God. When God looks at us, he sees our righteousness, he sees our goodness, our inherent Goodness is non-existent. Our righteousness is like dirty, filthy rags. And that's what we have to offer to God. Do you really want to stand before God? The God of the universe, the God who spoke out of the darkness and created the light, He created you and everything that you see around you. He holds the whole world in his hand. He holds it upright and he controls what goes on with the power of his word. Do you want to stand in front of him with filthy rags and say, this is what I brought you? You ever been at a Christmas party or somewhere and presents are being exchanged and a few in front of you get opened and you realize that your present is really bad? Like you thought, this is really good. I bought something awesome. And what you find out is everybody else had a lot more money than you to spend on this project. So your present is terrible, and they're about to open your present. It's infinitely, infinitely, infinitely worse than that. We, one day, will stand before God, and we're going to offer up to Him our gifts, and they're awful. As a matter of fact, if you stand before God in the same spiritual condition in which you were born, He will look at your rags, and He'll say, depart from me, I do not know you. 
He will not accept your gift. But in Christ, in Christ, He takes our righteousness and He wipes it away. And He doesn't give us our own new righteousness that's somehow great, but Christ takes His righteousness and He gives it to us. So on that day, on that great and powerful and terrible day of God's judgment, when he judges the living and the dead, he'll look at us and he doesn't see those filthy rags. Christ took those and he stuck them in his pocket. Christ actually took those and he nailed them to a cross. And God looks at us and what he sees is Christ's righteousness. He sees his son who he sent and lived a perfect life and died in our place. He never sinned. His righteousness was sterling white. His righteousness was perfect. His righteousness was awesome. He had the righteousness of God. And so when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Having the king of righteousness on our side, having the king of righteousness enter into the presence of God and plead our case is a pretty good thing to have. This Melchizedek fellow, his name means king of righteousness. He was the king, even though he was a priest. It's the first qualification, the second. And then he is also, this is continuing in verse 2, he is also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. You know, I was watching the news this week. I don't know if you saw it or not, but they showed, they showed the city square in, in downtown Kiev in the Ukraine. And they showed it before these protests. It was a beautiful place. I mean, it, it looked like a, a great tourist attraction. It was, it was the kind of city, the city center that everyone could really be proud of. I mean, it was immaculately kept, and, and everything was very nice. And then they showed it after these protests that broke out in Kiev where, where the government snipers were just shooting people in the head. And it looked like a war zone. In 24 hours... In 24 hours, it had went from this beautiful place that a country could be proud of, that I'm sure that when people come into Kiev in the Ukraine, they would go and visit this wonderful city center, and it became a war zone. I look at protests going on and people being killed in Venezuela, protests going on in southern Thailand where they are protesting the prime minister there. I think about hearing of U.S. soldier killed last weekend in Afghanistan. We don't think about the wars there that much anymore. I don't. I mean, maybe you think about it all the time, but, but I don't. And yet, our men and women are still there fighting, and they're still there dying. Why? It's because there's no peace. It's so ironic that, that we sign peace treaties with people. You know, in the first, first World War, we went to war with Germany, and we signed a peace treaty with them. And then just a few years later, Hitler was there. And it took him killing himself and us dropping two atomic bombs in Japan to end that war to have peace. See, there's no peace. There's no peace in the world. I mean, there's none. 
There are places where there is no conflict right now, but there's, there's, there's no peace. And there will not be until, until the world has seen the Prince of Peace, until the King of Peace is the ruler of the world. In that time, we will understand what peace is. Now we just on occasion get to see the absence of conflict. This king, this Melchizedek fellow, is apparently the king of peace. It's the one who Abraham gives a tenth of his things to, who Abraham falls down and worships when he meets this king. I'm grateful that Jesus Christ is the king of peace. He is the prince of peace, and one day he will bring peace to the world. It may take a great battle that ends all battles, but in the end, when it is over, there will be peace, and there will be peace forever. You know, we look at the end of the book of Revelation, and we see that time when when Christ wipes the tears from everyone's eyes. It's the beginning of His peace. Because there can be no more crying, because there'll be no more conflict, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more destruction, there'll be no more wars, because He will have brought peace and poured it out across the entire world. We have that promise. We have that promise, even though it's oddly tied up in this fellow Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, who many of you have never heard of, it is a sign that God has given us of things to come when there will be a king of peace and He will rule over everything. And he'll have no end. And that's where he takes us in verse 3. He says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor an end. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You know, the problem was with the priests that they had in Jesus' day and that they'd had throughout the history of Israel is that they came on the scene, they lived a while, and they died And when they went in to make a sacrifice, when they went in to offer hope, they were going in as sinful people. They couldn't make it last. You know, they couldn't couldn't make it stick. It It would work for a little while. Just like the kings that Israel had, just like the judges that Israel had, just like the prophets that Israel had, it would work for a little while. But it would have to be renewed. They would need something else. They would need something new. They would need someone fresh. But then the odd thing happens in the book of Genesis. Before there were priests, this is what he says here later in these verses, before there were priests from the house of Levi, which all the priests in Israel had to come from this one particular family, before they even existed, Abraham is coming from battle and he meets this fellow Melchizedek. And he had no beginning or end. He had no father or mother. He had no genealogy. But he resembled resembled the Son of God in that he was a priest forever. This verse here is one of the reasons that some commentators, when they look at this passage, they believe that instead of this being a person from Jerusalem, that this was actually what is known as a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. That this actually was Jesus. Why? Because this, this fellow had no end. He had no mother or father. He had no genealogy. He just showed up there. 
And Abraham is so struck by him that he falls down and he worships him. See, you and I need a priest that has no beginning or end. If we put our hope in anything else, it will fade, it will die. It's the great tragedy of those who follow the religions of this world that are false. They put their hope in someone who is dead. You look at all those who have started any of the religions of the world and they occupy tombs today. Muhammad is there. Buddha is there. Joseph Smith is there. They're there. They died. But Jesus lives forever. Jesus died but was raised. And he is a priest who is eternal. And because he is an eternal priest, we put our hope in him. We can find security in his promise because he has been raised. And he lives forever for us. fourth thing, he does not descend from them. If you go on into verse 6, he says, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Think about this. It's so important in the genealogy of, of Israel to come from Abraham. I mean, that, it's a family thing. You know, being Jewish is an ethnic thing. It's not simply a religious thing, but it is an ethnic thing. You have descended from Abraham. Well, here's a guy in Melchizedek who doesn't descend from them, but he's greater. He is there before them. You know, we know that when Jesus is born, that he is from the house of David. He is from Abraham. We can see in two genealogies in the New Testament, one for his mother and one for his father, it is important that they come from the family of Abraham. But the good thing for them and for us is that he just doesn't descend from Abraham, but he predates Abraham. Jesus always has been. He always will be. Just like this fellow, Melchizedek, Jesus, Jesus is greater. Jesus is older, if you will. Jesus is eternal. And because He is, we keep His promises. And then fifthly, the priests pay Him an offering How interesting it is in verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The priest had the job of going out and collecting the tithe. That is how they lived. They collected it from the people. It was in the commandments. But what he's saying here is that they honor this Melchizedek, even the priests, even the ones who were to go and make sacrifices for the people, even the one who was to stand in between the people and God and ask God to forgive their sins, even them, even Levi, even though he hadn't been born yet, he gives an offering to Melchizedek. It shows that this guy was greater. He, he says that the inferior... The inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 7. In other words, this Mikhail, think of Abraham. 
There's, there's very few thought of greater in the Old Testament. But who is greater? Well, apparently Melchizedek. Because Abraham bows down and worships him. Abraham gives him an offering. Abraham sees his authority. So there's something about this guy. Why does he do it? Well, because he is the great eternal priest. And Jesus is compared to him. The priest makes this promise. And he makes it for us. I want you to understand this morning that that even though we're facing difficulties, even though in your life you're dealing with things that I don't even know about, things that are hard, things that make your future uncertain, things that make your family's future uncertain, whatever they are, this promise that we read about here is not something that I'm making to you this morning. It's not something that I'm telling you, you know, God is going to take care of you, and I'm going to promise it. God promised thousands of years ago. As a matter of fact, God promised from creation that everything that he said would come to pass. Every promise that he made would happen. And we read this promise where God has spoken his word, and he has made an oath. And what he has said is going to come to pass. And so whatever we're facing, whatever we're dealing with, we have a God who has sent His Son. His Son who came and died for us. His Son who took on these roles as this priest. The priest who lives forever. A man who stands between you and God. And when God looks at you, He doesn't see the filth of your sin. But He sees the goodness of His Son. He sees the blessings of His Son. He sees the mercy of His Son. He sees the sacrifice that His Son has made. He sees the scars in His hands. He sees the scar on His side. And He knows what sacrifice has been made. And because of that, He looks at you and He does so favorably. And so whatever you're dealing with, and I know it may be serious, but God has made the promise that He's there, that He offers His love and forgiveness, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what hardships you face, He is going to be there and keep His promises. And so maybe this morning there are some of you that that need to need to pursue his refuge, that, that need to pursue his hope. Maybe some of you are going through things and you're trying to do it on your own. You're, you're going through things and you need the encouragement that he gives, you need the refuge that he provides, and you're just not turning to it. My question would be what well, Where else do you have to go? What do you have? What offer do you have that is better than what He gives? What hope do you have that is better than what He is offering you in His Word? Where can you go and receive what He is promising? His promise is an anchor for your soul. 
if you're anchored anywhere else this morning, if you're following anywhere else, going anywhere else, I just want to encourage you that, that this is what God has given us in his word. And it's greater than anything you can try on your own. Nothing else is going to work. But we can put our hope in him. And he calls us to that today. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we have hope. We have power in your promise. God, I know that there are those here this morning who who just, they don't know you. They've never found their hope in you. They've never taken refuge in you. God, they're here. And I just ask that you would speak to them. Lord God, we are, we're desperate for you today. God, we're desperate because, God, some of us are struggling. Some are hurting. God, some do not know what direction to go in. But God, you keep your promises. You call on us to obey. You call on us to cling to you. That's where our hope is found. And so God, I just pray that you call people to cling to your hope this morning to seek you, to seek your face, and to seek, God, your hope. God, I just thank you. I thank you that you love us, that you take care of us, that, God, you guide our hearts. And I pray that that's the case. God, as we sing this morning, that you would guide the hearts of the people here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing. I just uh, ask you to respond in whatever way God speaks to you this morning. If you don't know Him, if you don't have a relationship with Him, I would love to share with you this morning how you can know our God, who is this great God of encouragement and hope, this great God who gives us refuge in our difficulties, and a God who never breaks His promises. Would you respond as we sing this morning?